Who lives? Who dies? Who tells your story? Runs the poignant lyric from the American hit musical, Hamilton. Who tells your story? Well, storytelling has been at the heart of this podcast for many of the 350 weeks and counting we have shared together, but it didn't occur to me until last year to start a new episodic series that will feature some of your favorite Motley Fool personalities telling their story. Because regardless of who lives, who dies, and the truth is we all do, the unanswered question is who tells your story? And I thought, well, why not have them do so? Why not have you do so this week, Bill Mann or a Hughes? Where'd you come from? And if you had to tell your story in just 10 sentences, how would you tell it? And what does the stock graph of your life look like? And what were the three key moments that made you into the investor you are today? Telling Their Stories, Volume 4, kicks off this week only on Rule Breaker Investing. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. Thank you so much for joining with us this week. Suffering fools gladly. And fools is in the plural because I'm joined by my two friends, Bill Mann and Ori Hughes. And we're going to get to know Bill and Ori a lot better this week. And this is just a delight, this series. For me, selfishly, I don't have to do that much work. I just come up with a few questions and I just listen and have fun interviewing. Uh, they're the ones doing the work. They've put together the 10 sentences that tell their story. They've thought about the stock graph of their life, etc. So unless I screw this up, and I don't think I did the first three volumes, I, I think we'll have a very enjoyable show for you today. And it's kind of fun because a lot of people know Bill Mann since he's worked at The Fool longer than I have, just about. And not as many know Ori Hughes who's worked at The Fool several years. And I got to know Ori for a good year or two in the office before we closed down our offices. I haven't seen Ori in a couple of years, but um, such a talented analyst who help, has helped out on Rule Breakers and other services. So sort of a fun contrast of something old and something new this week. And can't think of that without thinking about something blue this month as well. But if you're a regular listener, if you heard last week, you know what I'm talking about. Anyway, something again old, something new. Although I don't think Bill's that old. He's younger than I am, and I hope I'm not that old. So anyway. And in fact, if you find yourself enjoying having enjoyed this week's episode, please know that the previous three volumes featured Emily Flippin, Rick Munares, Jason Moser, Matt Argusinger, Aaron Bush, and Tim Byers. And no doubt, I will keep this series up. This is the first appearance of Telling Their Stories in 2022 but I suspect it will not be the last. It's a great opportunity for me to introduce you to many different Motley Fool personalities. And one of the things I really appreciate is that not all of us were raised directly as investors or expected to be an investment analyst when we we're going through grade school or even college. And so it's that Motley mix of different people and how they come to love the stock market and ultimately for each of them, how they have come to work here at the Motley Fool, which is so very, very motley. And that's clearly something that runs not just through this week, but through uh, this podcast and through our company's history. Now, if you are new to this series, I'll just refresh. There are three building blocks that will make up each of my conversations this week. The first is the story of your life in 10 sentences. So both Bill and Ori have crafted their 10 sentences. We'll talk through those a bit. And then we'll go to something that, yeah, makes even more sense for investors because both Bill and Ori have graphed the stock graph of their lives. And so while you won't be able to see it, 
I hope I'll be illustrative and we'll talk you through the ups and downs, the 52-week highs and lows. It's really up to them to speak to whatever aspect of their lives that they'd like to, and that's always a delight. And then the final building block for each of these interviews is the three key moments to becoming the investor that you are today. And while we're going to be featuring Bill and Ori, it's not a bad reflection for you, dear fool. Ask yourself, if you haven't already, what are the three key moments that have made me the investor that I am today? And probably you'll add a fourth or a fifth, or this list will change over time. And I suspect even Bill or Ori might answer differently five years from now, but it's not five years from now, and it's definitely not 30 years from now this week on this podcast. It is right now. And here he is, my first guest. Bill, it's so good to see you again. David, I haven't seen you in a long time. I miss you, my friend. Thank you. I mean, here we are seeing each other over Zencaster, which is the platform we use to record our podcast, where we can see each other, but selfishly, we're only allowing each other to see our beautiful faces, not all of our listeners, because this podcast remains audio only. So I didn't need to put the suit on, is what you're saying. <laughs> You look, you look great, Bill. You always do. I'm in a, I'm in a trucker hat and sweats. I'm, I'm glad, I, I'm glad I anticipated. Well, Bill, before we launch into the story of you in ten sentences, could you just briefly remind our listeners? I mean, I see you many a day, practically every day. It feels like on Motley Fool Live, so I know you're spending a lot of your time there. But can you just briefly remind our listeners of what your calling and responsibilities are at the Motley Fool? Yes, you see me every day doing Motley Fool Live. My primary area is I'm the director of small cap research for the company, and I spend most of my time researching companies in the everlasting uh, set of portfolios that we have at the Motley Fool. Uh, I am our resident internationalist. I run the uh, the the global partners uh, investing service. And yeah assist in the managing of others of the in the everlasting suite of uh, services wherever I can. Wonderful. So Bill, what is a typical day in the life for you these days? I mean, morning show feels like 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. Eastern, many a morning. Are yeah. you then just going diving into spreadsheets, listening to earnings conference calls? How are you spending your time in a in a random day? Well, David, as you know, even for those of us who are who are tremendous extroverts, uh, a nine to eleven every single day it takes a lot out of you. So usually between eleven and say twelve to one in the yeah. afternoon, I just do some reading. I read either either I'm reading company uh, company reports or I'm you know I'm, I actually do a little bit of pleasure reading during that time. I really am a firm believer in quick little recharges as you go throughout the day. Uh, and you know, I spend a lot of time researching companies and thinking about uh, thinking about ways in which I don't know this sounds like doom scrolling a little bit, but I, I but I do spend a lot of time during my <laughs> days trying to figure out the ways in which I you know things I've said before are wrong. And huh. I I think it's a very, very powerful I mean it's a powerful thing to do. Can you give a recent example? Well, I was 100% wrong about uh, my thought that Russia wasn't going to to invade Ukraine. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I just i i I didn't believe it. 
I, you know, I didn't believe it. And I know that's something that's, you know, maybe that's not a fair example. It's, it's really been something that's been very much on, on the front of my mind as it has been, I know, for you and for, sure. for, for, for people everywhere. Well, thank you for that, Bill. And again, thank you for how many years of service at The Motley Fool? I came in uh, August of 1999, so I can't even just take my shoes off to count enough anymore. <laughs> that is coming up on 23 years. And Thank it's you been, so much. On behalf uh, of so many listening right now who have enjoyed you, grown up with you, learned so much from you as I have over more than two decades and counting at The Fool. And, and so I'm going to say without further ado, let's wind it up here, build the story of your life in 10 sentences. William Haney, man, the third. Tell your the story. Third. That's right. Uh, so uh, my, my story is exactly 150 words, which I believe was lovely, at least part of the task. I am privileged. I'm dyslexic. I'm asthmatic. And I don't fear failure. When I was little, I was allergic to everything. I even spent some time in an oxygen tent. My grandmother took care of me on those days. She was confined to a wheelchair by arthritis, and she was an educator. On days when the weather would cause my asthma attacks, I'd sit with my grandmother, and she would repeat her favorite social studies lessons. I was confined to a small house in Shelby, North Carolina, but I learned about the world, and I learned about not giving up. Most people who study languages, which was my course of study, learned the basics. I approached fluency in German and Japanese in part because of the lessons from my grandmother. I never worried about using the wrong word or making a mistake. Being unworried about failure actually helped me get past the learning disability that I didn't know I had until I was 30. Wow. Thank you for sharing that, Bill. And I'm, I'm just picturing, what was your grandmother's name? Her name was Elizabeth Craver. Mm. Yeah. What was, what was her background? And did she, were you her favorite grandchild? Yes, by a lot. <laughs> My, <laughs> it really wasn't anywhere close. I, I was, I, I was her favorite grandchild. She had, uh, she had seven grandchildren and I was the second oldest. Uh. Um, but I was just, I was a curious kid. I was probably a weird kid, but I was a curious kid. And she, you know, she, she, she loved challenging me. And we would just talk about, we would talk about cultures from around the world in this really, I, I, I almost, I almost can't emphasize how small Shelby, North Carolina was, you know, at the time. And, you know, and, and, uh, you know, and yet we traveled everywhere mm. together, uh, there in that little house. Did those travels also become, Real travels, not just imaginative travels. Did you travel extensively as a kid with your family or not? Yes, absolutely. We had the opportunity from about the time I was 10 to travel many places, but my parents always had a philosophy, which was we never just went to go hang out someplace. We would always have a reason <laughs> to go. Uh, right. You know, maybe we, you know, if we were going to Germany, we would, you know, we, we, we read about the recent history it, where we were going. If we were going to New York, there would be a reason why we would, we would have to pick out in advance what we wanted to see at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Wow. Uh, so, you know, very, very much was able to manifest that interest into being able to go places, but it was always based on a, you know, some level of, of education. 
And so did that same intentionality, Bill, and I'm assuming that came obviously from your father and mother, um, and I, I would say we were much more itinerant travelers and much more <laughs> real kind of traditional tourists relative hey, to hey, hey, family. I, I have I have legendary stories of your father dragging you and your and your siblings <laughs> to shareholder meetings to meet CEOs. So there I, was some intentionality to that. You need to give yourself some more credit than that. But I am curious, Bill. Did did that same kind of I, I'm going to use the word again intentionality? Did that same degree was that also true of what happened in the household or how your your parents raised you, or was that just distinctive to the man family traveling circus? I think it was I, I think it was fairly distinctive to that part of our lives. We were we we were classic Gen X kids where we would wake up uh and 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 my mom would say, Well, get out of the house. We'll see you tonight. You know, mm. so yep. uh we definitely had a lot of uh you know, a lot of throwing rocks at, at things and building dams and seeing what, you know, like th- we had a lot of unconstructed time, which, you know, w- which I think is something that, you know, that, that I value so, so much now, but yeah, it was really that component of our, you know, of, of our existence that was existence that was um, uh, much more purposeful and, mm. and intentful. Did you start shaking off your allergies? I did. I did. Um, about the time that, yeah, uh, probably when I was about 12, I started growing out of them. I, I still have them, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, most people never really get, get rid of them. But yes, it stopped being debilitating for me uh, about the time I turned 12. Uh, and, uh, it, you know, so it, it, was, it was a really interesting thing, having things open up to me, like being able to play basketball, which in North Carolina – kind of a big deal uh you know but but i started all those things a little bit late and bill you um your facility with languages is that something that that came from your parents is that i mean i i know and we're going to get into this i'm quite sure in the stock graph of your life but you have lived many different places and i i got a two on the french AP placement, advanced placement exam, and two is not really good on a scale of one to five. So I'm just not good at languages. I've always been impressed by people who are. Yeah, and I think a lot of that is just simply lacking the fear of making a mistake. I, I, I you know, there, there is, there are actual love it. There are actual psychological studies that show that people speak languages better if they've had a a sip of alcohol that something mm-hmm. that that inhibition or that worry or that need to be perfect really actually is the enemy of the good and so for me i wanted to learn german so much and i wanted to learn japanese so much so if i didn't know the word i would use a wrong word and maybe i'd get corrected maybe i'd get away with it maybe they would have absolutely no idea what i was why what i was saying because the word was that wrong but it's amazing when you try just how much credit you get. <laughs> Makes a lot of sense. You know, Bill, when I think of you, I, I remember discovering you on our discussion boards. And I'm not going to say that I was the talent agent who saw you and, you know, had you make your first YouTube video before, by the way, YouTube existed and that you <laughs> right. went viral and became famous. But at least within the Motley Fool ranks, I was saying, hey, there's this really bright guy posting on some of our AOL discussion boards, and we should talk about maybe maybe whether he'd like to do more with us. And there was this other guy who was also his very son. Bright. A lot of 
<laughs> so many of our listeners will not know what you just did there, but you just humorously reversed what I was going to say. I was going to say that your father has always been a very active, fun, a Motley Fool member. Mm-hmm. He's come to some of our events. He's certainly a fan. He's posted a lot on our forums back in the day. Yeah. Uh, and and you were both will, uh, worthy of hiring, although you were easier to hire than your dad back then. I think that's why we got you. Yes, exactly. I was I I, I was at least <laughs> the, the second choice. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, in fact, you know, my name has always been TMF Otter on our boards. And my dad took the name Otter Potter. And exactly. you know, if you, you know, uh, you, you can, you can still find him that way. Um, Love it. Yeah. He's a, you know, he's, he, he, he's a delightful, very, very thoughtful man. He's in retirement now. So, uh, you know, so he's writing more than ever. Uh, hmm. But, you know, he was really the one. Uh, I would say that my, my the influence of my dad was always, you know, like for example, when I was when I was a senior in college, I was like, Dad, I think I'm about I'm I'd like to go to law school, and he goes, No, you wouldn't. <laughs> no, you wouldn't. <laughs> and, and which 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 sounds awful, but that's point- exactly what our dad said to us. And I don't know if you know that, Bill, but <laughs> our dad was a banking lawyer, and Paul Gardner Jr., our dad, the one thing he said to his three kids was you're not allowed to be lawyers you can be anything else that's and so we, great we were so great my my dad was a little bit more than this like this law school is not where you are going to go to figure out what you want to do mm. right you are not putting off even if you don't know and i think this i think this is really important because i think you know now that i have kids who are in college and you know looking at college you see how much pressure they have to seem like they know what they want to do, right? And you don't. You don't have that pressure at all. But at some point, and for my my dad, it was my senior year of college, you don't get to keep putting off, even if you go do something that isn't exactly what you want to do, mm. kicking that can down the road by trying to go to law school was not the best plan. So if I'd pushed back, he would have said fine, but he, he just called my bluff. And that was, I mean, it was a gift, actually, because that would have been a really bad choice for me. It's also very expensive. It's a very expensive way to figure out what you actually want to do, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. All right, Bill, and we're about to get the stock graph of your life, but I'm having too much fun with what you just threw down a few minutes ago. You mentioned, of course, dyslexia. I did not know that about you. I think it's amazing that you did not know that about you until the age of 30, thereby must hang a short tail. Can you give us a little bit more? Yeah, so I think it really had to do. I, I mean, I really put a lot of credit on the fact that we or blame. Maybe should I, should I say blame on my grandmother? Hmm. God bless her. No, uh, <laughs> that was less funny than I hoped it was going to be. We'll start out. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> I think that you know, I I think that ultimately because I had learned in such a you know in in such an informal way from the time that I was little, I had. I had all sorts of ways to work around what was actually a problem, and I didn't realize it. And I can tell you, David, that in two instances, it was very frustrating to me growing up because there were two things that I was unable to find a workaround for, the first of which was physics, and the second was statistics. Mm. physics class and statistics class were amazingly hard for me and they were and they were really frustrating because i could not figure out why the base case 
building block things that you're supposed to learn. You know, imagine uh, imagine someone, you know, who has dyslexia trying to figure out what a type one versus a type two error is every single time. And for a lot mm. of people, it's just obvious. Uh, but it really took a long time and it took it 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 took until I was an adult and I finally I I went and got uh, I, I found myself getting very frustrated about things that I was unable to really process that I went to go see a doctor and the doctor goes, well, yeah, you're dyslexic. <laughs> wow. So that's um, just amazing, Bill. Yeah. You know, and I, I don't want to, I, I don't so want to, you're reversing, you're reversing numbers, you're reversing letters as you're reading. That's, that's how that I had thought about dyslexia. That's, that's what you're doing. Well, it's more it's it's more of a processing type of uh, type of difficulty that I have. Um, I mean, I love to read. I read fine. I you know, I'm, I'm, you're one of the better read people I know. Well, I, I mean, yeah. wow, you you obviously read fast. Yeah, that's, yeah, I do. That's something I, else you do. I yeah, I do, and and I think because of that, it was not something that was that was evident until I would run up against things that would just cause my brain to overheat and mm. that's when we figured it out and you know david it would have been really nice to know when i was in high school or college for certain things when i could have used a little extra time mm. but uh i'd say you know it's it, it's worked out okay and i'm i'm delighted now to you know to be able to embrace it because i do know that you know that what i have been able to do and 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 how I've been able to analyze companies, for example, I do in fact start from a different place than a lot of people do. Let's stay with stocks, Bill, but you know what? Let's now go to the stock graph of your life. Now, for most of us, it starts somewhere in the lower left and mm -hmm. goes somewhere to the upper right over the course of time. I do trust that's the general flow of your stock graph, but What's I am dyslexic, though, David. So let's not <laughs> oh. uh, let's not assume anything. <laughs> okay, I will not assume anything. So where are you going to start us over on the left somewhere? So uh, I, I I would say that the Bill Mann stock graph starts high and ends and 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 ends high. I you know I I. I've been really, really privileged with, you know, we, we talked about my parents and my, and my grandparents, my, my grandfather, uh, my dad's father, uh, was the CFO of a publicly traded company called hmm. Cannon Mills. It was a, it, it was a, in fact, if you look in your, cool. if you look in your closet, most likely you've got towels that say Cannon on them or sheets that have Cannon on them. That was an independent company. And so he was the one who, when I was young, bought me my first shares of stock. And it was shares of, of, of Cannon. I remember, you know, opening up the newspaper on Saturday because that's, you know, that's when the, uh, the prices were listed. You would check then. And, you, you know, so he was, you know, between my grandmother teaching me Hmm. And my grandfather having us take an interest in what he was doing. I, I started from a really high point and I then everything, it. everything about me has been a disappointment since then. So <laughs> how's that right <laughs> So you're the first, you're the first in the history of the series to start higher than he ends on the ground. No, I, right. I, I, I don't think that's true of you, Bill, but you know, it's your graph, <laughs> not mine. And, uh, and I appreciate your points. Uh, for those of us who do have different forms of privilege that mm -hmm. in many cases we took for granted or didn't even know about, uh, when we were little kids, we can now look back and just realize what a special um, place we started from. And obviously, where is Shelby, North Carolina? So it is about 40 miles west of Charlotte, North Carolina. 
And I, you mentioned it was smaller earlier. I've spent a lot of time in North Carolina, not nearly as much as you. I don't think I've ever driven through or past Shelby. I kind of circle around Chapel Hill, a lot to the east, but then again to Winston-Salem, uh, the city that I married into. But but yeah. I, I don't get that far west, Bill. So you were telling me offline earlier, kind of in the – were you in the mountains? Kind of in the foothills, foothills. west of foothills. yeah, the foothills west of Charlotte. It's the home of Earl Scruggs, who uh, you know was a very famous musician. You know, it's a it, it's it's a wonderful you know wonderful little town. Um, I'm actually surprised that you haven't been there because the college that is just outside of uh, of Shelby is called Gardner Webb. And I'm aware of Gardner Webb simply mm-hmm. as a basketball fan because occasionally right. they will make and it's March the the tournament. The March Madness tournament, the NCAA tournament, but wow, yes, I didn't know where Gardner Webb was. I did know it was a North Carolina school. It's actually a town called Boiling Springs, which is just outside of Shelby's big enough for a suburb, and that suburb is Boiling Springs, and that's where Gardner Webb is. Very cool. So your grandfather was a chief financial officer. Yeah. A numbers yeah. man. He was a numbers man. And yeah, and my other grandfather was was a farmer. Hmm. That's wonderful. So um, you started us high. Let's progress forward. What what do we happen upon next? The next spot on 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 my graph was a was an interesting point, and it's a little bit lower simply because I had I had a big moment right as I was graduating from college, and it was this: I had gone through, and I went to American University, and I was in the, the U. School, the U. Love yeah. it. I was in the School of International Service, and I was studying to be a diplomat, and I had taken the Foreign Service exam. This was all happening while my dad was saying, don't you dare go to law school. Um, <laughs> and I, I passed and was waiting for, uh, you know, waiting to hear what embassy I was going to go to. And there was this girl, David, and, uh, you know, I liked her quite a bit. And she, <laughs> she said, you know, Bill... I like you quite a bit too, but I'm I'm not coming to Chad with you, and uh, or wherever it is that you end up. I'm going to law school. So um, that point of my life, it was it was a difficult decision because I I gave away a dream because I had you know because I had met this person. You Cut sure to the did. end that you know I did marry her. We are we 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 are still married, but it was a really important wow choice in my life kind because of a I fork gave in up. the road as a very young man bill yeah i gave up the thing that i thought i should be doing hmm. uh you know for her and then uh, ironically now she works at the state department so we still get that just on the other side of our family i was gonna say we had dan dan pink on last month talking about the power of regret any regrets about the decision not just to go to chad <laughs> i mean when you put it that way <laughs> <laughs> No, I I would say I I would say that I have gotten to do ninety percent of what I wanted to do then, but in an entirely different you know in in a, an entirely different context, married to the right person, mm. and that you know so there are things that I think about, but no, I, I I have no regrets about that. But it was a very very hard decision at the time. All right, Bill, I'm imagining we're alighting upon two more stops before we get to the three key moments making you the investor you are today. Where are we headed next? We're going to the low point, David. Okay. We, got, we have to hit it eventually. Because, Hero's journey. Hero's journey. Yeah. Hero's journey. Because here's go the, the question. Other world. 
Right, exactly. Here's the question that has not yet been answered. Okay, he gave up on his dream to go into the Foreign Service. So what did he do instead? And what I ended up doing instead was I became, after a couple of stops, uh, a partner in a little telecommunications company in the late 90s. And I I know you remember the late 90s. Telecommunications was it. That mm. was the place to be. Telecommunications was where the internet was launching from. A lot of those businesses were, uh, you know, a lot of those businesses were just exploding in growth. And we were, we were a little player and uh, we were deeply undercapitalized, which it turns out in that, in, in, mm. in that world puts you at risk every single day. And so our business essentially um, failed. Failed. Well, in, uh, yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for saying that. I talk about failure all the time on this podcast because I've still picked more bad stocks than anybody in Motley Fool history. Yeah. You can eventually maybe try to outlast me and outcount me there. But <laughs> we, you and I share many things, Bill. And one of the things we share is that we don't fear failure. And 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 indeed, it, it, it kind of it liberates you to be you and do some crazy stuff. And especially, I think it liberates entrepreneurs. There are a lot yeah. of crazy people, and a bunch of those crazy people are under the subset of entrepreneur. They're willing to take the risk and try it out. And you know what? Many things don't work out, and we learn from that. Many things don't work out, but I still, to the, this day, say it was the best, best business education I possibly could have gotten because we, we learned at that point in time how, how, bad, you know, how bad outcomes can come from good decisions. Mm. And Bill, my recollection is that you were not on U.S. soil, right? This is a, this is a, a telecom company where? Uh, it was based actually here in Virginia, but my, oh, okay. my, my, well, yeah, but my primary work was both in Jakarta and in Karachi, which are places that uh, not a whole lot of people go for, for tourists, you know, for, for tourism reasons. Mm -hmm. But yes, in fact, uh, this is where, this is where this low point starts to, to curve back up in Karachi. When I would get into my hotel room at night, you're not going out again. It was, you, 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 you are in, you're locked up. It's it, it's not a particularly safe place to be uh, in the late 90s. Mm -hmm. um, and so I started messing around on the Motley Fool message boards. Mm. That was the point in time when, you know, when I discovered the Motley Fool was putting my my certainly crazy uh, <laughs> you know, theories about investing up, uh, you know, up on the fool. So that was I would like to say that that was purposeful. <laughs> uh, but it really was it to me. It really was the moment I saw the Motley Fool and what you all were doing at the time, and watching people learn together in an unconventional way, wrapping back to how I had learned from the start. From the start, I thought this is a place where I would like to spend some time. Mm. So that was the low point, David. <laughs> <laughs> how wrong I was. <laughs> uh, how lucky we've been. Bill. I was thank a value buy. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you for sharing that. Do you remember your first day at the fool? I do. Uh, it was, um, it was actually, uh, it was in August of, 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 uh, of 1999. And I came in and I was sitting directly across from, 
a guy named Dale Wetlawfer, who I know you remember, an absolutely delightful, very, very smart thinker. I've kept I, I've I've kept up with Dale. He is yes. he is a wonderful human being. He he also uh, he's also a demonstrative human being, and so I was I, you know having been on the discussion boards, I thought I was going to come into a place that was going to be very calm, very collegial. And Dale comes storming in and sits down and starts screaming at his own computer screen, like this far away from me. <laughs> not, not hi, nice to meet you. He's just screaming at no one. And I thought, have I completely <laughs> misjudged what I have gotten myself into? Had I said something wrong to him in the elevators? I don't know what. The, who knows? Who can know? Again. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Bill, one thing we're never going to have enough time on a single podcast is to hear all of your stories and what a wonderful storyteller you are. That's why you fit so well into this series and you're you're bringing memories back from me just mentioning Dale, such a wonderful man and uh, yeah. a great fool, a friend of the fool over the years. Um, all right. Well, we should we should close this one out. Where are we going to finish it? The stock graph of your life. I think we have to engage in some recency bias and take stock of where I am right now. Great. And that is that. That is this. Maybe after that first day with uh, with Dale Wetlaw for yelling at me, but not yelling at me. Uh, <laughs> I don't feel like I have worked in 22 years. I I wake up in the morning. I get to talk to fools on the morning show. I get to come and you know. I I get to look for companies. It's a treasure hunt. It is. It's stressful at times. Not to say that you know. Not to say that it isn't. But it is a delightful, delightful way to have uh, spent my professional career. And I'm, you know, and so I'm at an all-time high and tomorrow I'll be at another all-time high. And the day after that is, you know, the weekend. But then after that, the next market day <laughs> will be another all-time high. <laughs> well, that's a wonderful way to close it out. Bill, um, in addition to your wonderful history at The Fool, your ability to tell stories, I so appreciate your positivity. You know, I think nobody at The Fool, I think we have a lot of rational optimists mm -hmm. in the words of Matt Ridley, uh, the author and friend of The Fool who's come through through spoke of the fool before but you know i think of you as a classic rational optimist there's a lot of rationality in you bill and you are somebody who's not afraid of failure and you recognize yeah. good things are, are are ahead and you know obviously it's a hard time in the world right now so it's especially so. good to hear where you are that you are at all-time highs and i'd like to say I, I kind of feel the same way myself but we know that there's a lot going on Speaking of a lot going on, I mean, you probably, I can't imagine how many things have shaped you into the investor you are today. I'm picturing you, I'm making this up, you're there in a rocking chair next to your grandmother on a rocking chair on a balcony in foothills overlooking, and you're talking, you're probably already being shaped as an investor. But, but to get those moments down to three key moments that have made you the investor you are today, Bill, man, what is, what is the first? I think the first may have been my 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 grandfather, who is the farmer, who everyone called Big Joe. And Big Joe, uh, I don't know that his salary or you know that what he earned as a farmer, I don't know if that annually ever included a comma in it. But he mm. retired very very comfortably, and the reason he did, and I you know I asked him about it at at, at one point, and love it. It was because he had bought three stocks and three stocks only. The first of which was John Deere Tractor. Great. The second was a little company called North Carolina National Bank. Uh huh. 
which today is Bank, Bank America. Of America. Or, yeah, after about 17 different acquisitions. That's right, exactly. And the third uh, was a little insurance company uh, based in Winston-Salem called Jefferson Pilot. Wow. And Jefferson Pilot used to put on the ACC tournament every single year and – my my grandfather's analysis. I'm not saying he was. I'm not saying he was a deep financial ana- analyst, but I am saying that he figured that if they were wealthy enough to put on the ACC tournament, it was an okay place for him to put his money. And Great. those were the only three companies he ever mm. owned. And he would sit down with a with his financial guy, and the guy would say, "You know, Big Joe, I think you'd be need to be diversified." And, and my my grandfather would say, "Are you saying that any of these three companies are in trouble?" And the guy would say no. He'd say, "Well, thanks. <laughs> That's that. Great. That's, wow. Right." And so that was that was a lesson. It was a lesson early on. I don't think he ever looked at the share prices, but he bought quality and held on tight, and it was transformational for him. Well, and and I bet you just transformed a few minds listening to you right there. So these kinds of experiences, the reason we like to tell our stories is because they influence. We're all such social creatures, human beings. We're also bandwagons. We're constantly bandwagoning on each other and sometimes subconsciously. So, Bill, I bet you just got a few more people to hold their stocks a little bit longer. I hope you did. What's, I hope so. What's key moment number two? Key moment number two came in December of 2001. And I had the, I, I had the privilege, um, after the, after Enron collapsed, um, Senator Byron Dorgan from, uh, from North Dakota asked me to come and testify to talk about what it was that individual investors could see, could have possibly seen for, you know, in, in in order to have figured out that Enron was not what they said said that we're going to do, and this was this was an incredible honor. I mean, I you know I still think it's it's a little bit baffling that I was asked at that time to come and do it. So I came back and I felt I came back to the office and I was with our our general counsel Lawrence Greenberg and I came back and sat down a little full of myself and sat down and opened up my computer. And that's when I realized that a company that I had been writing very positively about was down 97% at the same exact moment that I was, that I was being lauded as someone who was, you know, who was an accounting expert who could talk about, who could talk about fraud. I stepped into one myself Mm. and it was a reminder to me one the limits of knowledge and two, the, you know, the, the, the need to remain humble all the time. It was because David, as you know, we all have bad outcomes when it comes to investing. And sometimes those outcomes are, are due to our having not seen something that we should have seen. And sometimes it's just luck. It's just luck and bad luck. And you, you have to give yourself the grace that what has happened to you could very well be the latter and not the former. One of the things I remember from Peter Lynch's book, One Up on Wall Street, was just he disconnected um, process from outcome. And, yeah. you know, this is kind of like the designated hitter in baseball, which you can make good arguments either way about. But, you know, that, that, that idea that you can do all the right things and it can fail. You can also can do... Fail. Lots of crazy, stupid things, and it can work. And while it's very hard to replicate those things over and over, most of the time when you do good things, I think good things will happen, and and vice versa the other way. But 
but it is important. And especially, Bill, if you're going to live with a, a life not fearing failure, I, I'm actually thinking back to that day, and I love that you centered on that day as key moment number two, to experience the highest and the lowest all at the same time and realize in some ways you were both deserving and undeserving of both of those outcomes on that very day. Love that moment. Yeah, and David, I think I I th- I think what's important for people to understand when you know when, whenever you're thinking about, I mean, any you know, investing any pursuit that you go on, that if you are making good decisions, you know, I, I coach soccer, and one of the things I always talk about is like I don't care about the score; I just want us to create scoring opportunities. If you create scoring opportunities, you should win. If you don't win, that's okay. Mm. But all we can do is continue to try and create those opportunities. And if they don't happen, maybe, you know, maybe we screwed up, maybe something bad happened, but you got to let it go. Because if you, if you focus on that part of the process, things are going to work out for you in the long term. Are you a winning soccer coach? So that's it, it it's it's completely unfair that you should ask me that. Uh, yes, I'm I yes, I have Of course I, you I, are. Of course I am. I that's mean, I what agree I with your say. philosophy. Yes. I was going to say true dad, but then I thought rather than say true dad, which is kind of glib. I thought I should ask on behalf of our listeners if you're a winning soccer coach, Bill. I have some trophies, yes. Um in in the world of youth soccer, a lot of times victories come based on who ends up coming out onto your field day one. But uh-huh. I always had the philosophy that, you know, and and not, not a lot of the parents weren't with me on this, but I had the philosophy that every kid on my team had to be better at something at the end of the year than they were at the right. beginning. Right. Yep. And so and because these kids are all starting at very different places. I mean, you know, these these scores, nobody would remember the score from the you know, from the from two minutes after we walked off the field. It's mm. snack time. Yeah. Like they're yeah. happy, but if they are playing better and they've got something to feel good about for themselves, that's what I think is important. Well done. Key moment number three. Uh, you know, so I've thought long and hard about what my key moment number three is. And 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 I actually do think that. It was your brother having me come and join him when we were at a very early part of our of, of our company as a publishing business, joining him on Hidden Gems. Because, and I know that you have spoken about this as well. There is there is both a you know it, it is both liberating and it is constraining to have to come up with a stock idea on a schedule. Right. And the the art of doing that and, you know, and I and I, and I give I have a hard time giving your brother credit for stuff. I don't you know if you know that, but <laughs> but I do give I, I very much do give him credit for this because I don't know that it was 100 percent clear that I would have been good at it. Um, but, uh, you know, but he believed in me and, you know, and just getting into that process of having to have a process mm. Well and that said. process worked on a schedule, I think has made me a much better investor today than I was the day I showed up to, to, to start to write. Well, Bill, man, it was a delight to have you on Rule Breaker Investing this week and to tell us your story, to talk us through in exactly 150 <laughs> words where you came from, to talk through the stock graph of your life. I know there's a lot more than we can ever have time for, uh, but I, I so enjoy your storytelling. You did, you did that throughout. And congratulations again 
on being the investor that you are today, uh, renowned across Fooldom and certainly outside of Fooldom. And to think back to the time you testified before Congress, other things like that probably are in your future as well and our future. And so, Bill, thank you again for your leadership, for your friendship, and for your foolishness. Thanks, David. Fool on, brother. All right. And next up to bat this week, yeah, it is baseball season, I guess. Wait, is it baseball? Baseball is not being played at a professional level right now. That makes me sad. Anyway, next up to bat this week on Telling Their Stories is my friend, Ori Hughes. Ori, great to have you to Rule Breaker Investing. Hey, David. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to be here. And I'm excited to be here, and in part because you've shared with me some of the elements we'll be talking about, like the stock graph of your life. And so I'm looking forward to getting right into that. But before we do that, Ori, could you just acquaint listeners um, you have not been at the Fool as long as Bill Mann, so people may not know you as well as some people, anyway, know Bill Mann. Or how are you spending your time at the Fool these days? So now I'm working on three services. Um, I'm working on a service called Fintech Fortunes, which I help kind of produce the idea and get off the ground with uh, yep. some with a fool named Buck Hartzell, who's been here for a while, and he's someone that's great to work with, very thoughtful. Um, and then I'm working with... Um, your brother on Everlasting Stocks and another service um, called Firecrackers, Everlasting Firecrackers, which is uh, particularly exciting because it's uh, micro cap stocks. So we're in this a smaller market cap range. Uh, so those are kind of the three services I spend most of my time researching and vetting ideas and looking at companies for. Wonderful. Orient, at the top of the show this week, I mentioned that I had the pleasure of being in Full HQ with you for about a year or two before we had to shut it all down. So it's a couple of years later. I haven't seen you in person in a while, but but I, I have fond memories. And I, yeah, you joined us on the Rule Breakers team for a little while. And I was just checking the date. The date was February 27th of the year 2020. Ori, that's when you proposed C Limited, ticker symbol SE, for Motley Fool Rule Breakers. And I agreed with you that day. And while it's been a volatile stock, it's had some high highs and it's had some low lows, like a lot of Rule Breakers over the last year. This has been a big winner. A lot of fools own this stock. And if they bought it the day we recommended it, Two years ago, just about this week in Rule Breakers, up 161% with the market up 49%. So, yeah, that's one of the things that Ori Hughes has done, uh, one of many for Motley Fool members. In fact, as long as I have you here, Ori, what do you think of C Limited these days? Yeah, it's a great company. Um, and I, I think it, was, it wasn't that much i wasn't followed that much when i discovered it um and they had this exciting business model and they were copying i think some other successful business models and marketplaces we had seen between you know amazon and mercado libre yeah and they were replicating that in uh, southeast asia so i thought it was particularly exciting um it was founder led and the founder had a sizable ownership in the business and it was growing at a remarkable rate so i just thought you know this this looks like it has a lot of potential to be a lot bigger. So it was particularly exciting. And I thought it was very appropriate for rule breakers. So I was, you know, ecstatic when you decided to put it, publish it to the service. Thank you. And yeah, this is a stock that hit a high of just over 350. And it wasn't long ago that that happened. It was somewhere around Halloween of last year. It, of course, has been more than cut in half since. And yet, in it to win it for the only term that counts, the long term, I continue to like where C Limited is today. And uh, the stock is more than a double from just two years ago, which I think I'll take over any given two-year period. But I'm sure some fools who may have purchased at 300 are a little sadder when it's closer to 120 
right now. It's just a reminder of these volatile times that we live in. Well, Ori, I'd love then to move into our format and ask you to share the story of your life in 10 sentences or less. Are you ready? Yes. All right. Ori Ashanti, Jabri Hughes, tell us your story. Sentence one, um, early interest in money, art, and sports. Mm -hmm. Sentence two, raised in the suburbs of Northern Virginia. Sentence three, first jobs were at Milwaukee Frozen Custard and Radio Shack. (laughs) Sentence four, took my first snowboarding lessons at 17. Sentence five, I have a varsity letter in marketing competitions. Sentence six, I attended the school of the scrappy George Mason University. Um, Sentence seven, I had benefits while working in a basement. Sentence eight, uh, working but lacking some fulfillment. Um, Sentence nine, preparing for the opportunity. Sentence 10, hired at the Motley Fool. Well, thank you for that. And and I I know you've in particular focused on um, on becoming a professional, which is which has been the process for you over the last five five to ten years. Dreaming of of working, we're going to talk about that a little bit. Dreaming of being an investment analyst, but in fact, being one, winning a competition. Well, we'll talk about that in a sec. But let's go back, Ori, to growing up in Northern Virginia. And thank you for sharing that. Um, what were you like as a kid? If, if, if your parents were here, what would they be saying about Ori that you didn't have a chance because I restricted you to 10 sentences? Yeah, I think um, uh, I, I was just, I think I was always intellectually curious. Um, and I think uh, I've always kind of been interested in money and, and markets and understanding how they work. So I think budgeting and saving money at a young age for things I wanted or, and um was always of interest to me and in how I could, you know, use money uh, and grow it. So I think, I think when my mom explained compound interest to me, I think I was I thought it was like so fascinating because I was like, you do nothing and the money just makes more money. Like, how does that, how does that work? So I think I always had an interest in um, kind of the markets and, and finance from a young age. And I think it just kind of grew uh the curiosity grew from there and i think that kind of dictated my path going forward yep or do you have siblings uh yes i've I've one sister okay and does she share the same interests i mean sometimes we're very different from our siblings but then again it's the same parents maybe the same kind of culture growing up yeah i think um um my, my sister's probably more of a, a liberal arts person i think she was more into literature and learning languages where i was probably a little bit more uh logical analytical focused mm-hmm. uh but in the beginning i i was more artistic i liked to draw and then eventually i became more uh analytical going forward and enjoyed math and various things like that i think it's great to integrate both and clearly uh, you have done so. Tell me a little bit more about your first jobs. Yeah, so my my first job was at Milwaukee's Frozen Custard, um, and it's this obviously it's a custard place local to where I'm from, um, and it was actually this enduring uh, little business um, that hired a lot of the teenagers, very seasonal uh, as you could imagine. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. spring and summer are the the best months to be, (laughs) to be employed and probably the most busy. And, and the, the irony of that is then I took a job at, um, 
Radio Shack. And of those two franchises, <laughs> Milwaukee Frozen Custard is, is the only one still around to date. Amazing. So I think, <laughs> so, so I think it's a you know a good case study as a business analyst or as an investor to you know think about what is a, an enduring business. Um, and I think that Milwaukee's was local. Uh, to our area, it kind of has those homegrown roots, so it was just uh, interesting. Company. It's funny you say that because, of course, when I hear the word Milwaukee, I think immediately of Wisconsin. But you're you yeah. talking about Northern Virginia. <laughs> yes, yes. Was was that kind of a, a shout out to Wisconsin? I, I and, think know, so. The frozen so, Wilds. So that, I think yeah? the original founder. Uh, I think they had either lived in Milwaukee and like the custard was really good, and he thought like, you know, I want to transport this to the area where I am, and it's uh, it's. You know, it's really good. So I think that was the original thinking. And I'm wondering if that young entrepreneur at the time knew that his dream would outlive Radio Shack. Okay, Ori, I know you are an <laughs> analyst. You're an intellectually curious person. Have you ever looked back at Radio Shack and kind of figured out what exactly either happened or should have happened that didn't? No, I, it was. I think at the time of my life, it was just I was thinking about it as just a means to to make extra some extra money. Um, I, I think you know I, I don't think they. It's interesting because I don't think they specialized in anything. I mean, particularly, I, I think I remember when I was there, my manager was saying the the highest margin items were the generic like batteries and things like that. Mm. Um, but I, I guess for that model, it was really hard to kind of have a competitive and enduring competitive advantage. Yeah. Um, Amazon must have really, really heard. I mean, I, I lived through all this, and I certainly remember Tandy, which was the parent company name for a while, and then I think they rebranded as Radio Shack. Just Googling as we're talking, I see the company did file for Chapter 11 in February of 2015. It's okay. probably one of those stocks for a little while where people speculated in kind of its penny stock era that it might come back or it, it you know, maybe right. this will all work out. Often they don't. This one definitely did not. Anyway, I, I always love American iconic brands, whether they work or whether they don't. It's it's a touch point for all of us to to share and think together about what did happen. And um, there are some good articles about why Radio Shack went out of business. But enough about them. This was just a lark for you. This was like a summer job, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you keep working through through school at George Mason? Did you did you have jobs? Uh, the people who impressed me most on college campuses are those that are doing something. They've got their side job, their side hustle. Uh, while sometimes they're putting themselves through school, uh, some of the most energetic people. Are you one of those, or were you able to? I don't know, full scholarship, or how'd you get to GMU? No, so so I am one of those, and that's why I call it uh, the school of the scrappy. I was talking uh. to uh, one of my former, no, one one of my friends who also went to George Mason, and he said uh, the difference between us and I guess like the the other Virginia schools are like the kids that went to Mason were always like doing something else or working a part-time job and going to school or commuting from home. So like we, we were never just students, wow. which I think is the, I think the strength in that is, uh, allows you to be resourceful, um, kind of become independent. You know, I started budgeting at an earlier age. Um, so you, you develop a lot of like practical skills and, um, my first internship kind of turned into my job um, organically, but, you know, a lot of that I was doing while, you know, while working. So I got, you know, some great working experience during the schooling process. I'm really happy about that. Thank you for that. School for the Scrappy. I do know the dean of the business school at George Mason, very fine man, Maury Papert. And uh, George Mason University, 
maybe a school not as well known um, nationally, uh, but certainly in the DMV, that's for D.C., Maryland, Virginia, in this large metropolitan area, George Mason is the largest school. And if it were a stock, I'd be buying today. Uh, and I assume you are a proud alum. I, college basketball fans, since it's that time of year, will remember that George Mason <laughs> made the final four, <laughs> shockingly, about 20 years ago in one of the truly fairy tale runs we've ever seen. Yes, madness, yes, but, indeed. Yeah. All right. Well, you alluded to it earlier, Ori, and when you first came to The Fool, I remember that this was said of you. So could you please give the story of getting, did you say, did you letter in a marketing competition? Yeah. You can get a varsity letter? <laughs> yeah. Explain. Yeah. yeah it's, I think it's really interesting because, um, Obviously, yeah. Like like many other people, I like sports, um, and sports get competitive. But I was that was never the the best thing I was ever good at. Um, but around my junior year, I had started taking marketing classes, and there's this organization called Deca, in which you would compete in these marketing competitions, where you would sit in front of a judge and you would be given a case study, and love it. Five to ten minutes, you would have to you know basically present a problem to this case study go before the judge and the judge like ranks you and you it's like you know you have to think quickly pitch maybe you illustrate ideas you but you're putting business practice to work in a short period of time what were you um, pitching um so it would be like maybe like one of the examples i remember was maybe it's a car dealership and their sales are down so they it gives you a scenario and then you'd have to come up with like a promotion or a strategy to improve the car dealership That's and great. then and then the judge, it's like a role-playing scenario with the judge, and maybe the judge is the manager, but they're like kind of judging you on this conversation. Yep. But it's in the form of like business role play. So it's it's really interesting. Um, and I, you know, I did that. So I I made it past the local level, and then I won at states, and then I won at the national level, but then oh, I didn't golly. make it to the finals. But it was like the furthest anyone in my school had made it in these competitions. Spectacular. Yeah. So it was, it was, I was something I was really proud of later. Um, but it was like, I ended up getting a varsity letter for this competition. And it was like, <laughs> it was really great for me because I had never been the best at anything. And I was like among the best at this. And it kind of fostered that interest in business. I had already, you know, it always had in marketing yeah. and just kind of learning uh, the, this trade at a young age. Uh, so, so I'm really proud of it. It's uh, it was, I think it's an interesting, you know, a little fact. What a highlight. And uh, yeah, Emily Flippin, who was on this series last year, was really good at debating. I remember she was she was kind of a national debating championships kind of a person. So I guess the fool has a knack for finding people who can compete at a national level. <laughs> and, and all these things are about speaking and thinking. And and there's some improv in there as well. Or have you ever done improv outside of the improv <laughs> you're doing there? Done. I love comedy, but I've never done improv. Well, you might want to consider it because you obviously clearly have some skills there. But that that that's wonderful. And did you get your letter at the sports awards ceremony at the end of your high school year with all the other <laughs> people getting their I don't know baseball or football letters? No, or? No, that's a great question. It, it wasn't with the sports awards, but it was with uh, <laughs> we had our own special, I guess, segment for the marketing students where That's I got great. it. Um, yeah, I just didn't have the jacket, but I, I still have the letter to this day. <laughs> you know, I, I assume this was true of your feelings going through high school. It certainly was true of mine. I think a lot of us share this. Um, sports is so lauded, so idolized in some ways, uh, not just by kids playing them or the athletes that they idolize, 
looking up to, but but really by the adults running the schools. I mean, the, the sports award ceremonies are really big deals. By contrast, things like what you were amazing at, <laughs> the marketing awards ceremony, not as cool. Not many people are really, um, you know, thinking that we even would get letters in that. But when you really think about life backwards, you start asking, what are the things that are going to endure? What are the, and I mean, I love thinking back on schoolboy moments in sports where a, a magical thing happened, but I mean, that's not that relevant to so much of the rest of your life. Whereas thinking fast on your toes, problem solving in front of a judge toward business, which is what so many of us are either investing in or spending our lives as professionals. That feels very real to me. So while I didn't make the hiring decisions because I don't make any hiring decisions at The Motley Fool, I can see some of what we're seeing in you, and I'm glad it's worked worked out so well for all of us. All right, Ori. Well, I want to get to the stock graph of your life, but do you want to point to anything else in conclusion looking at your 10 sentences? Um, I think the final one is kind of closest to where we are today, hired at The Motley Fool, and I think this is a major milestone because it's where my passion kind of merged with how I make income. Um, and it was a very proud moment. And I, you know, I felt like I reached a breakthrough for becoming an investment analyst. So it's, you know, very happy. And I'm looking to just continue to grow and develop as an analyst and mature, uh, not mature, but just grow as an investor. Wonderful. Well, you certainly have been doing that. The process will continue. And I guess it's a process that for all of us needs to continue our whole lives long. ABG always be growing. And Ori, you are obviously a clear demonstrator of that. You know, I, I do think intellectual curiosity, which is a phrase you used earlier, I think that's such an important trait, um, especially for for us in investing and analysts and looking at companies. And Bill Mann earlier used the phrase treasure hunt, which is what he feels like he's on when he's researching stocks or thinking about what to buy next. But it is that flame of interest of asking, why do things work that way? Or what can I learn about this that clearly runs through you, Ori, and through a lot of our analysts. Well, let's go to the stock graph of your life. You took the time to trace it out. You sent it to me uh, earlier. So I'm looking at the visual. We can only talk our listeners through it. Now, looking at the graph here, I'm seeing IPO or birth <laughs> right around 1990, Ori. So we're placing you in your early 30s today. Uh, you, 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 I read off two middle names earlier. Ashante was the first one. What, is, what does Ashante mean again? Is that Swahili? Yeah, it's, uh, so it's like a African tribe um, from history, and that was the, that's uh, the meaning of that name. Okay, awesome. Yep. I mean, is it a problem to carry around four names filling out forms these days, or <laughs> so ever abbreviate? Uh, usually, there's just like one letter, so so I'll just put A. <laughs> okay, uh, but if if I'm able to write it out fully, I'll write it out fully. Nice. Okay, good. So, talk us forward here from 1990. What do you want to alight upon as we move along your graph? Yeah, so it's interesting. I, I probably went into too much detail for this, but I think in the beginning part of my life, I had like maybe an average market return, um, so about ten percent. So you don't see like nice. a lot of uh, you know outperformance, mm -hmm. kind of just you know standard upbringing. Um, and then I feel like one of the big milestones is I think my mother taking the initiative to move to Northern Virginia. Um, because I think she was, you know, researching the education system and ah. um, how how is I think it's one or two within the country, and she thought it was a great public school education system. 
Um, and it put me around, you know, just kind of noble peers that were very competitive. And I think that encouraged me wow. as well. So that um, was very intentional on her part. She was like, yeah. I want my kids to get great education. Where are the best places? Certainly Northern Virginia is one of them in the nation. Um, I see from the graph, our listeners can't, that it looks like you moved right around the age of 12. You moved, where, where did you move from? Where did you grow up? Yeah, so I was um before that I was uh wow your 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 math is like completely accurate based I on mean, the years. I mean I I am fast doing numbers as long as yeah. we're doing addition, subtraction, yeah. multiplication. Yeah. <laughs> Once we start hitting calculus, I I'm not so awesome, but thank yeah, you. man, uh, yeah, I gave it a lot of detail. So around uh I was in Texas 4 years before that. Ah. Um and then before that, um I was in like uh Maryland okay. uh between the ages of uh, one to like six or seven. Okay. Yeah. What's your favorite memory from Maryland? Your favorite memory from Texas? Oh, geez. My favorite memory uh, from Maryland, probably being in the first grade uh, playing tag uh, in, in first grade. And I think that just being the ultimate bliss at that age. Yeah. <laughs> um, Rambunctious age. Yeah. Favorite memory from Texas is probably – I think that was the age I started sleeping over a friend's house and spending time and developing friendships uh, during youth and just playing games, riding bikes, those type of things. Well, I'm glad you ended up in Northern Virginia, Ori, because I think in some ways it explains why you're at The Motley Fool today, since we are based in Northern Virginia, although we certainly have employees now working uh, in a hybrid new world that we live in, working from all over the place. What do you want to talk about next? Yeah, so I think um, a major inflection point on the chart, too, is I think when I opened a brokerage account um, while mm -hmm. I was in college and just got started, um, and I think that gave me a major advantage uh, at a young age or kind of fostered the learning um, at the same time while I was taking business courses. But I think um, your brother said like one of the biggest things in your development as a stock analyst is just having the P&L. Um, and getting started and investing. So I, I, so I think starting the account yeah. and funding it and just looking at stocks, reading. Yeah. I remember the TD Ameritrade account came with uh, equity research reports. Um, so I would just read those, read about a company. I would also use the reports to do uh, projects if we had to do a case study on a company, which I think gave me an advantage. Um, and it started getting the ball rolling about thinking about companies, investing and then more importantly, the emotional aspect of uh, owning stocks and getting comfortable with volatility um, at a at a pretty early age. So, I, so I really love that experience. Even though I wasn't gonna be, you know, a remarkable investor at 21, I think it gave me an advantage and got the ball rolling uh, to make better decisions later. Um, and I think ETFs had started to emerge. Um, so I started learning about ETFs. Yeah. Um, as well. Uh, so it was just a really interesting uh, time period. And I, I, I'm very happy I did that uh, in hindsight. Do you remember, was there a moment? Do you remember what triggered your decision that day? Had you been putting it off for a few years? Was there a conversation that led to it? Why did you open a brokerage account that day versus three years later or two years before? Oh, man, that's a great question. I think just the desire, I was, I think the desire that oh, this is very accessible. I can do this. And it's very easy to open, even if I'm not funding it with hundreds of thousands of dollars. Like mm -hmm. I can get the feel of buying a company and learning about the company and and moving forward. And I thought 
um, I think something just went off that um, I could, I like, I, I enjoyed the idea of investing and I could start building momentum at something I wanted to be good at. And yeah. like, it was very accessible to do, even if it wasn't huge sums of, you know, cash to invest at the moment. Isn't that wonderful? I, I'm wondering, did you have friends? Uh, were they doing the same thing? Uh, sometimes people who are interested in business or marketing in high school or even earlier, I'm not going to say it's a lonely existence, but it's, again, it's not necessarily what all the cool kids are doing, thinking and talking about. But uh, obviously you're a young man at this point. You're, you're in college. Uh, you prob- were you part of an investment club, anything like that? So I wasn't part of an investment club, but what ended up happening was, um, so in a lot of these courses, you do formulas and you learn a lot of theory. And, I, you know, that was nice, but I said, you know, I, I want to experience this in real life to some degree. Love it. And, um, you know, it's a lot of textbook learning, a lot of stuff you quite, you know, we don't frankly use now in practice, but I just wanted to experience it. Um and then I think it really helped to kind of to kind of do that and learn about the companies. And it, I just, you know, kept with it going forward. Well, as you were quoting my brother earlier, basically, no substitute for skin in the game, P&L, yeah. real numbers, real yeah. picks. I actually have a funny story I'd like to share. And, and I didn't go through with this uh, decision in hindsight, but I was going to take <laughs> I was going to uh, take out more student loans and invest it in Amazon. And wow. I did, and I didn't do it. <laughs> I I didn't do it, but and, I was going to. This gonna is max... around 2010, right? So we're this coming out around, of the Great yeah, Financial this is Recession. Two, yeah, this is around 2011, and I and I like humility prevented me from doing it. But I, I mean, the Motley Fool generally does not advise taking out <laughs> loans to to add to our investing. Now, single digit loans, maybe, and I don't know what kinds of restrictions are around student loans. Whether you're allowed <laughs> to take the money and put it in the market, I, I I feel like. Are you feeling some regret now, twelve years later? That you- <laughs> I mean, in hindsight, that would have been an amazing decision at, at twenty one. But I think I I don't regret it. But it was like. I, I saw like I was still very observant about the world, like like kind of like in the Peter Lynch fashion. Yeah, that's you the just takeaway. See, yeah, where you see things emerging and trends that are gonna, you know, obviously be a lot bigger. And I had those original thoughts about Amazon and I did buy some Amazon, but um I think humility just was like, No, let's let's not do this. You're not as experienced as you think. It would have been a great decision, but I think yep. um just as as much as that would have panned out, that you know that could have yeah. not went well. Is also it, it's true. <laughs> now I'm looking at the graph. Of course, our listeners can't, but you get a bump up here, Ori, with your first job out of college. What was that? Yeah, I think um, so. That was my I I'd, I'd always been worried about um, you know be finding gainful employment, um, being employed, being able to take care of myself. Um, so I think that was just confirmation that, yeah, you're, you're, you're working now. You're not going <laughs> to die broke. You're going to, you, you have a career, you have something that you're being thoughtful about. And I think my experiences when I was at like Radio Shack and I was like, oh man, I'm completely disposable. So I think it was a milestone mm. for me that, you know, I was learning financial analysis, um, I spent a lot of time in Excel and I was at a small government contractor doing some planning and forecasting for them. Um, so it was just a moment of pride that, you know, that first part of the journey where you finish school and now you're 
working and you're on your own and you know the the real life begins. What well, what was your mom saying at the time? She must have been pretty proud. I mean, yeah, I I, I think so. I, I think so. I think she definitely saw I was disciplined and I was very focused. And I think there's a certain certain sense of pride when you're a first generation college graduate. Um, hmm. So I think that's you know a sense of pride for the graduate awesome. and then maybe the parent as well. Yeah, that's great. Now, from that point forward, and again, your first job out of college, you're listening is 2011, so we're talking about, I'm not going to ask you to summarize all 11 years <laughs> in, in, you know, too quickly, but also not in long form, because we need to get to your three key moments making you the investor you are today. But, Ori, what do you want to speak about? Obviously, I'm delighted to see that you were hired at The Motley Fool, as I see now, 2019, so you're in your third year here. I'm happy to say... Um, yeah, your stock from college, it's gone from $50 a share to right around 215 today. So you're a four-bagger since college. <laughs> Thank you for putting some numbers to it. You're obviously having fun with that as well. What would you like to speak to through the last 10 years? Yeah, so I think that um, – and I think an expression of this graph is very common amongst the experience – uh, after graduating from college um, and joining the workforce, and I think I think a lot of that period was growth and finding out who I was, the things I enjoyed, uh, where I find the most fulfillment, um, which I think I'd identified earlier, but I didn't have a chance to express that through my work. Um, and I did some coding and some data analysis, which was great, but um, I think my my true passion was investing. Um, so I was, you know gainfully employed, but I think having the opportunity to work at the Motley Fool, um, you see like the the, the graph kind of hockey sticks because like finally, you know, it put me in a great culture, matching what I'm doing with great mentors, learning, uh, becoming a better investor. So I think my worth at that point dramatically increased. Um, so I think that was a huge catalyst and it's a reminder to me that much like life, entrepreneurship, stock returns, um, are not linear, even though we, mm. we think very linear as humans, uh, life is like a journey and you can still get exponential growth, but it doesn't go up in a straight line. And I think that is a very common experience, especially with, um, you know, my employment and then being hired at the Motley Fool. So I had like, I actually have numbers tied to that. So in that period, mm -hmm. I was like a 3% return. <laughs> and then like, I, it shoots up uh, after the hiring of Motley Fool. <laughs> well, our good fortune too. And you know, I, I, I really appreciate your point about things not being linear. Looking backwards, we tend to oversimplify our pasts and we tend to just think, you know, all good or hey, here's where I am, but we forget often all of the trials and tribulations we went through to get there. And I'm even thinking back to C-Limited, again, a widely held stock, a lot of fool fans, a, a rule breaker, uh, has really gotten nailed the last few months. But, you know, three years ago, it was at 25. Therefore, three years later, it's a five-bagger, which is an incredible return, five times your money in any three-year period. But it's also been more than cut in half in just four to six months. That's kind of like life for a lot of us in different ways. And so I think we owe it to ourselves not to forget how we got to where we are. And it's not linear, as you said. Exactly. All right, Ori. Well, let's close it out with the three key moments making you the investor you are today. 
And it's always fun to ask this of anybody I mentioned earlier. We're all at different ages or you in your early 30s. Maybe 10 years from now, you'll have two new ones. Uh, and maybe 10 years from now, I'll have two new ones, whatever my three would be. So it's a changing group. But here we are in March of 2022. You are 31 years of age. So let's put a pin in it right there. I'm talking to you as a 31-year-old. Ori, what is the first, looking back, what is the first key moment that made you the investor you are today? First key moment, open the brokerage account and invest in something. Start the P&L. Um, Love it. You, you learn the emotions of investor. Uh, you feel what it's like to buy a stock, even though that's the simple part, but researching, trying to understand what you own, forming an opinion. Um, you have exposure to something. I think those are very important. Um, so, so it's, there's so much that is encompassed in that experience of being an investor. So I think the moment you open the account and put something in it, it, it gets the ball rolling in a way that, uh, you can't, it's hard to kind of describe from just saying, you know, Oh, uh, learning, you know? Yeah. From potential energy, going back to physics to kinetic energy, all of a sudden you're doing, and I love that one. What's number two? Number two. Um, I think so. Uh, one of the books I read was reading uh, the Warren Buffett way. Uh, but but the, my major takeaways from that was I think was introductory learning that the the market is an auction place. Um, a business is the future sum of you know all the cash and kind of those general principles we love um, in that regard and just understanding that things move up and down, but is not reflective of the value of the business were those introductory lessons, I mm. think, in understanding how the market works and not being tied to day-to-day -day price movements. So much of it is what we think is going to happen in the future. We'd be silly, small F fools if we weren't weighing constantly where we think things are headed, but then we have to trade, buy, and sell in the now, in the yes. very near term. And so, it, it, you're, you're, you're right. And we're, we've seen the whole market get repriced, especially a lot of our rule breaker stocks get repriced here in just the last six months downward. Um, the couple of years before that, they were repriced way upward. And as we've been talking about, take it all in all, three years ago, we're much better off today than we were three years ago. But it doesn't feel so great when so many of our great winners have been cut in half, uh, let's say, since last fall. Is that the only Warren Buffett book you've read? Ori, I've still actually, confession, never read the Warren Buffett way or any Warren Buffett books. You're already one up on me. But more broadly, what kinds of investment books do you enjoy reading? Um, I think, uh, oh gosh, what, what kinds do I enjoy reading? So I think my favorite one was, um, as of now, 100 Baggers, mm -hmm. uh, which is uh, written by a gentleman named Chris Mayer. And it, you know, you learn about stocks that have returned um, 100 to 1 in the market. Yeah. Um, and kind of the principles of those and the commonalities. And then honestly, being able to hold them, not necessarily, obviously, there's certain principles and, but like having the stomach to actually like right. hold a stock that doesn't go anywhere for like a few years or that goes down. Yeah. Um, uh, so, and just kind of the case study of those stocks and their commonalities, which is a fun one. That's Wonderful. Thank one. you for sharing that. All right, Ori, close us out. What is the most recent key moment making you the investor you are today? So, um, 
I'm glad I started with the first two because the third one I think is very important. And it, I'm going to kind of meld these together, mm-hmm. but it encompasses, I think, a lot of the principles of rule breakers. Um, but I had read the Peter Lynch books, uh, Philip Fisher books, and then I've also spent some time on rule breakers. And I think the biggest takeaway from from the theme of or one of the themes and from all these three points is the power of growth. And basically, stock prices go up because businesses grow and businesses get bigger. And revenue growth is a big indication of that. So now, a big part of my process from working at The Molly Fool, being a student under, under you and, and Tom, is looking at revenue growth, seeing how that's trending, and then starting backward, and then going back from there. Um, so I, that's my third but most one of the most powerful lessons i think even more so than the like understanding we get from the the warren buffett lessons but those lessons we we take away from rule breakers and peter lynch and philip fisher and the possibility and understanding um how businesses grow larger over time and how that can happen wonderful Ori, what are a couple of companies that are on your radar today, companies that that you admire? You may or may not have recommended them through our services, and I'm not asking you to share what your next pick would be or what you're working on now, but what are a couple of companies that are sort of illustrative of your style of investing and that that you do like, let's say, over the next five-plus years? Oh, geez. It's it's so tough because I'm still – I haven't committed to one style, and I appreciate so many things about – different companies. So maybe I'll give two examples. Great. Um, the first example is uh, Constellation Software. Um, it's a little, it's a software business um, that is a serial acquire of small niche businesses. And most businesses that engage in acquisitions can't consistently do it. But this business has been, it's hit it out of the park and it's grown for a long time time and it's a tremendous winner and it's run by this founder led um Canadian guy Mark Leonard um and he's just created this niche acquiring these companies and it's been a massive winner and he writes a shareholder letter and it's a, a great you know simple business where you could but it doesn't have dramatic movements but it's been yep. a major winner over a long period of time now um, now another business that kind of let's maybe move away from that is probably going to be more volatile uh, one that I'm really interested in uh, that your brother likes is uh, Digital Ocean. Um, and Digital Ocean is uh, they've created a solution for small businesses that want to create on cloud platforms, but they're filling the gap that AWS and uh, Azure Amazon Web Services right? yeah are not in. So they're going after the small marketplace. Um, businesses and kind of pricing competitively for them. Um, and it's growing really fast and it's a, it's starting from a small base. Um, so it's a really interesting business and the founders own, uh, they're not involved anymore. They're, I think they're, they, but they still own a significant share of the business. So it's one I'm really interested in, which is probably going to be more on the high growth, more volatile side. Uh, so, you know, it's funny, I'm, I'm just a student of business. So I still find like all these companies fascinating, whether it be like a small, consistent compounder, yep. um, or a super volatile, high growth company, they're, they're all interesting to me. 
Well, and that's, that's why we use the word motley a lot, both in our corporate name and around our offices. Because in the end, Ori, you and I, nobody has to be part of a one view of things. You don't have to be part of a certain school or not. Um, I, I, one of the things I love about The Motley Fool is we have many different types of investors with lots of different viewpoints. And partly we feature services where you can follow uh, whatever color your parachute is that you've decided over the course of your life. You can even change the colors of your parachute as you go through life. And I think that's usually a really good process. So I do want to just highlight, since you mentioned Constellation Software, it's csu.to. It is a Canadian company, so it's on the Canadian exchanges. And, uh, and DigitalOcean, D-O-C-N, which I know is a popular stock among many full followers. Or you've been very generous with your time and your insights, sharing um, yourself and, and your process. And I, I know that you are a growth-oriented person. There are the growth mindsets and the fixed mindsets. You may have seen some work on that. Um, out there, there's um, you are definitely one of those with a growth mindset. I think that's in part what what thrives at the Motley Fool. So, Ori, continued best wishes for your work. Thanks so much for telling your story this week on Rule Breaker Investing. Yeah, thank you for having me, David. Well, thank you again this week to my friends and guests, Bill Mann and Ori Hughes. And I think I want to reiterate one thing at close, and that is, if you are an investor. And the truth is we are all investors, whether we know ourselves by that name or not. We're all investing our time and our money and things throughout the day, every week, every, every day. So I should say that if you, if you switched on to that and you recognize that you are an investor, maybe you talk stocks with your grandparents and rocking chairs in the North Carolina foothills, or maybe you were that young man who, as a student, actually took the initiative to open up your own brokerage account, recognizing the power of compounding, well, you'll realize that your story will inevitably be shaped by the investing that you do, that stock stories and our stories become intertwined, weave their way through our lives. And here's one more key insight. Boy, if it isn't also true that the more investing you do and the more care you take with it and the better you do, that story of your creation has a better and better chance of being a story with more and more possibilities, oh, the places you'll go, and one, I hope, with a very happy ending. And when you're gone, who remembers your name? Who keeps your flame? Who tells your story? As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about. And The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.